If you want to open your Bibles to 2 Samuel, you can go in your paper copy of the Bible. You can go on a mobile device if you've got a Bible app, or you can just go to Google on your mobile device and put in the number two, Samuel, and then five, and you can join me there. We're going to be looking again uh, at the life of David. We're going to talk about patience today. Now, I want you to know that if I step on your toes today, it's because the Lord's been stepping on my toes all week long. Patience is an interesting topic. Waiting on God to do what we're begging him and crying out for him to do in our lives is not easy. As I was preparing for this message, I came across uh, some things about patience that really resonated with me. The first one was, patience is something you admire in the drivers behind you, but not in the one in front of you. This one, patience is what you have when there are too many witnesses. That takes a moment to think about, right? This final one, all good things come to those who wait, except for those who wait too long. Maybe you've been there. As I mentioned, we're gonna jump back into the life of David, so we're going back a 1,000 years before Jesus walked on planet Earth. And when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 5, David is 37 years old. This is our eighth message in the life of Jesus, or excuse me, the life of David. And when we get to 2 Samuel chapter 5 in this eighth message, he's finally going to be crowned king of all 12 tribes of Israel. It's been a long journey. We've seen the ups and downs, the twists and turns in his life. And one of the things you realize as you read the Psalms, David wrote, 73 of the 150 Psalms, and even those he didn't write, we, we believe that he influenced another half of those with his own stories and worship leaders that served with him, uh, shaped their, their songs of praise, their psalms to the Lord, even from David's input in their lives. But when David looks back at his life, he realizes that before he became king, there was a season and a period where he had been grown by God to prepare him to be king, but it was a growth that took place in seasons of waiting. So today we're gonna to talk about when God takes his time. Maybe for some of you, you feel like God's been taking his time when it comes to finding that special someone to be your spouse. Some of you maybe have been in a season of waiting as a couple for God to bless you so that you conceive and have a child. Perhaps some of you are in a season of waiting when it comes to relationships, a broken friendship. Maybe some of you, it's a wayward child or grandchild. You're waiting to come home, come home to the Lord, to you as a family. Maybe for some of you, you're, you're waiting for one of the, these strikes in the industry to end so you can get back to your job. Maybe for some of you, it's waiting on hearing from that college or grad school about did you get into the program you wanted or not. Some of you are waiting on financial things and job things and medical things, but you've, you've been in a season of waiting. Maybe for some of you it's been weeks or months, maybe years. Do you realize that when we started this series and the first message I preached, we were in 1 Samuel 16, and Saul had turned his back on God, the king of Israel over all 12 tribes. Saul had turned his back on God, and God said, I'm gonna raise up someone who has a heart aimed at my heart, and he's gonna replace Saul, and he used the prophet and priest Samuel to anoint David to be king. And between that time of 1 Samuel 16, when David is anointed as a young man to be the next king of Israel, and 2 Samuel chapter five, where we are today, is 22 years. Talk about a season of waiting. For some of you, maybe it's been decades you've been waiting. You've been crying out to God. 
It's been hard to be patient even with God with the stuff that's going on in your life. Let's talk about when God takes his time and what David learned as he expresses it through the Psalms, what he learned in that season of waiting on God, those 22 years. You remember in those 22 years, there were times it seemed like everything was working out perfectly. Just within a couple of years, he defeats the, the giant Goliath, and he's, he's this great hero of Israel. He's the son-in-law to King Saul, and, and probably if he was just looking at it from a human standpoint, this is perfect. It's all working out. I can see the path. But then Saul gets jealous, tries to kill David, and David has to go on the run, hiding, and some people join him, and, and they're kind of in exile, and he even gets to where he's drooling in his beard before his enemies. He goes and lives with the Philistines, and it's just, it's about 12 to 17 years where he's on the run from King Saul, and it's hard, and that didn't make sense, and he's waiting on God. When am I going to be king? And then Saul dies, and you think, okay, now he's going to be king. But he only becomes king over one tribe, his own tribe, the tribe of Judah. As a matter of fact, for seven and a half years, while he's reigning over one of the 12 tribes, there's this nasty civil war, very violent and very deadly between the tribes you can read about in 2 Samuel chapters 1 through 4. So there are times it seemed like, okay, this is what God's doing. And then, nope, that's not what God's doing. And maybe you've had those moments where it seemed like God was answering the prayer. Then it was all of a sudden, no, no, that's not what he's doing, and I've got to wait again, I've got to wait again, I've got to cry out to God again. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, now after a bloody civil war, Saul's been dead seven years, David's 37 years old now, and now he's going to be crowned king of all 12 tribes, 22 years after God promised him that he would be king. Look with me in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler. When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David, king over Israel, all 12 tribes. Finally, after all this waiting, he is king of Israel as God had promised. Verse four, David was 30 years old when he became king and he reigned for 40 years. Now I said he was 37 because notice verse five. In Hebron, he reigned over Judah, just the one tribe for seven years and six months. And in Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. He's 37 years old when he becomes king of all 12 tribes after this long season of waiting. Now in First Chronicles, we often get another picture of some of the stories of David's life. And in First Chronicles chapter 12, verses 23 to 40, there's another record of this event where they crown him king. All the people get together, and it describes the, the families who come from the various tribes, tens of thousands of people who come to crown David. It's this great celebration. There's unity again after the brokenness under King Saul and the brokenness of the Civil War. There's unity again in Israel, and it describes the party, the celebration. It talks about what's on their party plates. It talks about the food, and this is this wonderful description in First Chronicles 12 of this day they crown him king, and all the people are there, and all the party that's going on. And at the end of that description in 1 Chronicles 12, we have this at the end of verse 40. For there was joy in Israel. God wants to bring us to a place of joy after our season of waiting. Even if, even if it's been 22 years of waiting. 
I don't know what you've been waiting on. I don't know what circumstances you've wanted changed so that you could have the desire of your heart before God. But today, let's talk about when God takes his time. Someone is, or Max Lucado has said, the circumstances that we ask God to change are often the circumstances God is using to change us. We just sang, even when I don't feel it, even when I can't see it, you're still working, you're still working. I want us to focus on this thought together today as we talk about when God takes his time. God does his greatest work in us personally when we wait on him patiently. And I wanna help make you aware of what God is doing when he's working on you during your season of waiting and crying out to God, maybe even with tears. God does his greatest work in us personally when we wait on him patiently. Someone has said, Sometimes God doesn't change your situation because he's trying to change your heart. We started this series, we saw that God was looking for a man whose heart was aimed at him to be the next king. I mentioned to you that I put together the website aimyourheart.com. You can go to aimyourheart.com and some of the quotes and things I use in this message will be available there. Some devotionals I'll post this week. I try to post a few things each week that help you with the message from before and hopefully it'll help cultivate in your life this week a sense of what is God doing while I am waiting? Let's answer that question here as we hear from David in the Psalms and many of the things he expresses were things he learned in those 22 years of waiting. Let's answer the question, what does God do while we wait? We don't think we hear from him, he's not doing what we're asking, it doesn't seem to be working out the way we want it to be. What is God doing while we wait? There are five things God is doing and he's doing it in us, he's working on us. The first one is this, he expands our capacity. While we're waiting, while we're praying, whether it's two weeks or two decades, he is expanding our capacity. The worship leader under King David, Asaph, in Psalm 78, expresses some things about David that are really important for us to understand about what God did in David's life in that season of waiting. Psalm 78, verses 70 and 71, he chose David his servant and took him from the sheep pens. From tending the sheep, he brought him to be the shepherd of his people. First, as a young man, he's just watching over physical sheep, guiding them, directing them, leading them but he expanded his capacity. Now he is the shepherd of God's people, the nation of Israel. He expands our capacity, first of all, to endure, to endure. In both the Old Testament and New Testament, there are two basic concepts and even distinct words about patience or endurance. And one category of words about patience or endurance in Hebrew and in Greek has to do with enduring under extreme pressure. It's not a long time, but it's so intense for the short period that we, we need to endure that. And some of you maybe are in that right now. It's only been a few days or a few weeks, but it's so intense, that medical thing, that family thing, whatever you're going through. Maybe some of you are in that. Then there's a second kind of endurance in the language that's used in Scripture, and it's, it's to endure over time. Not under pressure. It's pressure, but it's really over time. Maybe it's not so intense, but it's just... Over and over and over again. Remember, David was on the run from Saul for over a decade, and he's hiding in rocks and crannies and drooling in his beard before his enemies, and it, it, it just went on for so long. 
But God expanded his capacity to endure. Maybe God is expanding your capacity to endure. Secondly, he expands our capacity to accomplish. To accomplish. Remember when he faced Goliath, David said to Saul, when Saul said, you can't fight that giant. He's been a warrior since he was a kid, and you're just a kid. And David said, God protected me when I was out watching my father's sheep on the hillside from the paw of the lion and the bear. He will protect me from this ungodly Philistine. He saw that God was growing his capacity to accomplish so that when you read the next verse, after verse five of 2 Samuel, they, they crown him king, all 12 tribes, 22 years of waiting, it, it comes to this culmination, but God had preparing him, preparing him so much that in verse six, he's able to rally the people, they march against the Jebusite city that they haven't been able to take for hundreds of years, they conquer the Jebusite city, he renames the city Jerusalem, and it becomes this great testimony to God to this day and into eternity. But how could he do that right away? The first thing he does, he does what the people hadn't been able to accomplish for hundreds of years. It's because God had been expanding his capacity to accomplish. And God may be working on you right now for what he has for you down the road to prepare you and your capacity Secondly, he not only expands our capacity, that's not the only thing God's doing while we're waiting, but he forms our character. He forms our character. He shapes us, he molds us. He's described in scripture as the potter and we are the clay and he's shaping and molding. Sometimes you know, we get a little uh, a clump over here and it kind of dries out and it's a bad attitude, behaviors, relationships, something that doesn't match up to living and loving like Jesus in this world. And it seems like God takes a little chisel you know, and he kind of chisels away. For me, sometimes it feels like he's getting a giant sledgehammer, you know, and he's just crashing a big chunk off because I need something changed. But he's forming, shaping our character. Again, in Psalm 78, Asaph, the worship leader, describes David this way. David shepherded them, the people of Israel, with integrity of heart. With skillful hands, he led them. Notice there are two things here. First of all, he forms our character in personal integrity. The psalm says, he shepherded them with integrity of heart. He was genuine and real. What he said he would do, he would do. He'd own up to his mistakes and errors and sins. He was a person of integrity. If you looked at the trajectory of his life, not just the failures of his life or just the successes, but the trajectory of his life was he was a man of integrity. He's trying to develop in us integrity and character. But he forms our character also in practical wisdom. The last part of verse 72 says, with skillful hands he led them. There's something practical. He gained a lot of practical wisdom while he was hiding in those caves, while he was on the run from Saul, while he was leading those people who came to him who were in distress and debt and were troubled and, and they came and joined him in his hiding and he, he gained wisdom. You know, you look at Psalm 78 and verse 72 and my heart's passion would be that one day when I die that my family, my friends, my fellow church members, staff members here would, would be able to put on my tombstone, Sean shepherded them with integrity of heart, with skillful hands he led them. We should all 
want God to shape us in our personal integrity and in our practical wisdom. That means we've got to be willing in the waiting to let God do the work. And sometimes we see it and sometimes we don't, but we need to acknowledge that he is forming our character. Now, a lot of people would say, I really don't want my character formed. I just want to be comfortable. <laughs> I just want God to give me what I want and it'll all be good then. Pastor Rick Warren says, God is more concerned with your character than your comfort. He's not a hotel manager, he's a potter. <laughs> he's shaping us, molding us in our waiting. So what is God doing while we're waiting? He's expanding our capacity. He's forming our character. And thirdly, he deepens our compassion, our empathy, our love, our concern for other people. In Psalm 82, verses three and four, we read, defend the weak and the fatherless, uphold the cause of the poor and the oppressed, rescue the weak and the needy, deliver them from the hand of the wicked. He knew what it was like to be marginalized. He knew what it was like to be overwhelmed in life. We all live in a broken world with broken, sinful people. We're broken, sinful people. We're gonna be hurt by people. People are gonna hurt us. The circumstances of this groaning world are gonna affect us. So we need to care about one another. We need to have a compassion, first of all, for those overwhelmed by life. We need to have a compassion, even while we're in our waiting, he's developing a compassion for those who are overwhelmed with life circumstances, finances, or medical things, or family stuff, emotional, mental health, addictions, that they're being overwhelmed. We should have compassion. Secondly, for those mistreated by others. Those who are marginalized, pushed to the side, overlooked, not valued. We need to be people who have a Christ-like compassion. And he was developing in David a compassion that we're gonna see in David as king as we continue this series throughout the month of August and even into September. The Methodist minister of the late 19th century, early 20th century, Samuel Chadwick said, compassion costs. It's easy enough to argue, criticize, and condemn, but redemption is costly. Brains can argue, but it takes heart to comfort. He's working on our heart while we're waiting so that we'll have a compassion, empathy, a care, and a love for other people. You say, well, where would I begin? I mean, how do you just, can I just give you one simple way that you can show compassion to other people, people going through difficulties in life or people being mistreated by others? Is to say a kind, encouraging word to them? You say, well, what good will that do? It's a starting point to get the ball rolling and let God continue to grow your compassion, your kindness. Mother Teresa said, kind words can be short and easy to speak, but their echoes are truly endless. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're here in the room, you've joined us online, can I suggest that this week, look around at coworkers, neighbors, friends, family, people online, instead of complaining or arguing online, try to say just a kind couple of words to somebody. See what it does for those who are overwhelmed by life, those who are mistreated by others. He deepens our compassion. Fourthly, he grows our commitment. Our commitment specifically to him. Our commitment of our lives to him, to live in it for his will, his plan, his purpose. Psalm 37, five and verse 23 say, commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust him and he will help you. Give him everything, your job, your career, your marriage, your dating life, your finances, your children, your grandchildren. Commit it all to him and he will help you. The Lord directs the steps of the godly. He delights in every detail of their lives. In another Psalm he says, commit your way to the Lord and he will guide your path. 
He grows our commitment to our walk with him, first of all, to our walk with him. Let me say, you can't have a walk with God until you have a relationship with him. The scriptures say that every human being is born with a broken relationship with God because of sin and how we fall short of who God is. And the, the Bible tells us that we can't be good enough. We don't, he's not gonna, we're not gonna stand before him one day and he's gonna say, oh, you did a good enough stuff, I'm gonna let you into heaven because we all fall short. He's also not gonna say, well, you're better than your neighbors were so you get in and they don't. It's not comparison to other people. It's comparison to God and we're all inadequate and fall short of who he is. But God loved us so much, wanted to have a relationship with us so we could walk with him, not just in eternity, but in this life now and have meaning and satisfaction, joy and peace in this life now as we walk with him, that he sent Jesus and Jesus went to the cross. He paid the price for our sins so we could be forgiven of our sins. He went to the grave, was buried, and he was raised the third day so that we, like he conquered the grave, could have new life. And when we come to this place where we understand we need to save and we put our faith in Jesus and the personal work of Jesus Christ and what he's done for us, we are given by God a relationship with himself now and forever. We're forgiven of our sins. We're given new life and we can have a relationship with him. And that is what we must have before we can walk with him through life. And if you haven't come to that place where you've put your faith in Jesus to be your own savior, not just that you're a Christian by label because you're not Jewish or you weren't raised Muslim or you weren't raised this. Can I encourage you to do that today? Don't even listen to the rest of my message if you just need to work on right before the Lord saying, God, I, I put my faith in Jesus as Savior. Our care team and prayer team will be down front after the service. They'll pray with you about any need, but you can talk to them about what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus. I'll be in the lobby. You can speak to me after the service. We can have a member of our team just Make sure you know what it means to have a relationship with God through Jesus. We make it easy every week that maybe you've got the impulse, you've got to talk to someone, you've got to communicate now that you want to make sure you have that relationship with God through Jesus. You can just text the number. Just take out your phone and put the number 58568, the number below me on the screen. Just text that number and the body of the text, just put the word Jesus and we'll immediately respond and we'll follow up with you this week to make sure you understand. We want to help you understand what it means to know Jesus as your savior. Because that's, you have to have a relationship with God before you can walk with him. And he doesn't just wanna walk with you in heaven one day, he wants to walk with you now through the stuff you're going through every day. He grows our commitment to our walk with him and he grows our commitment to his plan for us. You know the times I've had my plans and something happened, I'm waiting and God puts me in a different direction, I find out after I get down that path, that plan was better than my plan. God is a much better God than I am. God is a much better God than you are. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. And if you're just out on your own doing things, you're gonna have anxiety and depression and discouragement and frustration, a lack of peace, a lack of joy, a lack of meaning, uh, a lack of security and satisfaction. But when you step back, you say, okay, in this season of waiting, he's growing my commitment to walk with him, but also he's growing my commitment to his plan for my life. Fifthly, while we're in the waiting, asking God to change things or to answer our prayers, he fortifies our confidence, our hope, our passionate confidence in him, that he is our rock, the psalmist says over and over again. He is our refuge. He had to take refuge many times in nooks and crannies and caves in the desert on the mountaintop to stay away from Saul and his elite forces 
and he knew that those things were really not his refuge. God was his refuge. His confidence was in him. And now as he's being crowned king, he can look back and see that his hope was strengthened. His confidence was reinforced. It was fortified in the season of waiting. Maybe some of you have gotten to that point point. you can say, boy, God really grew my confidence and hope in him. Psalm 62, five and six from the New Living Translation says, let all that I am wait quietly before God, for my hope is in him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He alone is my hope, my fortress, where I will not be shaken. Have you put all your confidence and your hope in your God? Have you put your confidence and your hope in yourself or in your stuff, in your career, your portfolio, your family? He fortifies our confidence in who he is. He is that rock. He is that one who is unmovable and we're not shaken when our confidence and hope is in him. We're standing on him as the solid rock. He fortifies our confidence in all, in what he will do. I'm gonna trust him. And you know what happens sometimes? We see the big storm and we're waiting and waiting for the storm to go away and, and all of a sudden we find ourselves in it and we think he's done something wrong. No, he knows what he's doing. Sometimes he takes us around the storm, under the storm, over the storm. Sometimes he takes us right through the storm. But we can have confidence and hope that he's with us and he will not forget us or forsake us. So what is he doing while you're waiting? He's expanding your capacity. He's forming your character. He's deepening your compassion. He's growing your commitment. He's fortifying your confidence and your hope in him. Remember, I, I, I recognize some of you maybe have been in this for the long haul. You've been under pressure for a long time. Some of you, it's just been really intense. I remember an occasion where my patience was tested. It wasn't a very long time, it was hours, but it was a really uncomfortable situation. It was New Year's Eve, 2019. And our family had taken the week before, between Christmas and New Year's, to go to Florida. It was my in-laws, who now live with us. It was our three kids, who now don't live with us. Um, we included um, my youngest daughter's boyfriend at the time, now my son-in-law, but we didn't know for sure. We just knew they were getting pretty serious. They weren't engaged. Right? We said, you come with us, let's go. to," And we went to a number of the parks in Disney World and Orlando for that week. And on New Year's Eve, we decided, let's go to Magic Kingdom. Let's bring in the new year at Magic Kingdom. They're gonna do it right. And you know, we weren't the only ones who had this idea. Several tens of thousands of people decided to go on the same day and it was a long day and it got so long we used some wheelchairs with my in-laws because it was getting hard and, but we, we held out for the new year and of course they handed out the party favors and the hats and the crazy glasses with 2020 on them and the noisemakers and it was all just great and you know, you get to the hour and Disney does this incredible, you know, five to 10 minute fireworks and all this stuff and about, 20 after it's all over and now we're all tired and it's about 10 minutes to the hotel. But you know how they set things up? If you've been to Disney World, it's a little different than Disneyland and the Magic Kingdom is like the Disneyland park of the two parks here in Anaheim. And the difference is though, they put a big lake and you park over here in a parking lot and then you take the monorail around the lake, the Seven Seas Lake, and you get to see all the beautiful resorts and things, you take it around and then you enter the gate of the Magic Kingdom or you can take a boat across with several hundred people on the boats and then you can see the beauty of it. Or they have a third way, a bus system. Now, when at 1220, we ended this great celebration of the new year, 
of 2020, if we'd only known then what we know now about 2020, I don't know how much we would have celebrated the new year. But as, as we leave the park, we're out of the gates of the Magic Kingdom, so now all we gotta do is get on one of these things, the monorail, the boat, or the buses, to get across to our car. And then it's 10 minutes. It's 12.20 in the morning. We rush out as do several thousands of people. It's all crowded up, and you have Disney people yelling, the monorail and the boats are gonna be your slowest route. If you wanna get to your cars quickly and get to your hotels, you wanna go to the buses. And they kept yelling that, so most people went to the buses. Well, they were not prepared at the buses. So we got in this crowd, and the crowd was just this 10 people wide, uh, just mess of people, and it was an hour and we hadn't moved. Got to be an hour and a half, we hadn't moved. It got to be two hours and we hadn't moved. We'd heard that monorail drivers had actually gone home. They had fewer boats running. And we're still in this line. And the Disney workers came along and, and they're telling us things. And the crowd on the other side, you know, that's really getting pretty upset after two, two and a half hours. And then there was an uprising and then there was a leader of the crowd of this uprising. And if you focus in on... If you focus in on who the leader of the uprising was, <laughs> I had about had it up to here with Disney. I'm telling these guys, you are better than this. What is going on here? I've been standing here for two hours. My in-laws are in wheelchair. But I was also trying to impress my potential son-in-law, so I'm trying to keep it under wraps, you know, my <laughs> frustration and anger. My type A was telling them how to run these buses. They didn't know what they were doing. <laughs> now, I hope that in that time I learned some things, because even in that intense moment of impatience where God and his sovereignty put me in that mess, God wanted to expand my capacity, grow my character. I tried to have some compassion, even for the Disney workers, have some compassion for parents who had little kids. Our kids were young adults. Some people had little kids screaming and tired, and it was hard for some people to stand, and but also just my commitment to him, even here, am I, am I living and loving like Jesus in the midst of this crowd? And, and then even my confidence, my hope is in God, not in Disney's ability to organize their buses. By the way, we got to our hotel about 4 a.m. <laughs> so my uprising didn't do much and didn't go anywhere. But maybe you've been in an intense season, maybe you're in one, maybe it's the long haul, but you've been waiting on God. Know that he is expanding your capacity. He's forming your character. He's deepening your compassion for others. He's growing your commitment, and he's fortifying your confidence and your hope in him. Even if you don't see it, even if you don't feel it, just like we sang, he's working. He's working. What is he working to do? To make you more like Jesus so the world can see Jesus in us. By the way we live, not the statements we make, not politics, not social things, but that we live in love like Jesus. So how do you wait well then? <laughs> when you can't see what he's doing, you don't understand it, how do you wait well? You know, one of the great verses on waiting in scripture is Isaiah 40, 31, where it talks about the frustration of the people of Israel, the trouble they're in, the difficulties, the mistreatment, and they say, our justice that we deserve, God, is escaping you. We read in Isaiah 40, 31, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up 
on wings, with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Isn't that a beautiful? Maybe some of you have this on a magnet or maybe you have it on a stitching in your home or a poster or somewhere, a screensaver, some way that this just reminds you, I gotta wait on the Lord and I will mount up with wings. The wings like an eagle. You know, eagles, when they soar, it's so beautiful because it's almost effortless, you know? One flap and they can just hover for so long and soar. And wouldn't it be nice if that's the way it could be, even when we don't have the answers to our prayers, even if our hearts are heavy, even in our waiting? Well, how do you wait? Well, how do you wait to the point that you soar like that of being on eagle's wings? Let me give you five things quickly that you can do actively while you wait, and God's working on your capacity, your character, your compassion, your commitment, and your confidence. Number one, Make going to God your first step, not your last hope. As a pastor, I meet people all the time that when their lives are going great, they're not in church. They're not opening their Bibles. They're not praying. They're not hanging out with God's people. Things are great. They're in control. It's wonderful. Then when they go into a season of waiting and things are hard and things are uneasy and there's difficulty and there's uncertainty about the medical prognosis or the family situation, the job thing, then all of a sudden they want to add God to their life so they can get a little dusting of God's blessing. The problem is that God wants to walk with you through the ups and the downs he wants to have this deep connection, this relationship, so that it's natural when you're going through those waiting periods to stay connected to him, not just when it's tough. He wants to be with you and walk with you in all the ups and downs of life. Psalm 63.1 says, Oh God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. Early will I seek you. It's about a daily connection with God. Can I just encourage you this week? If you're a follower of Christ, before your feet hit the ground, when the snooze has gone off for the fifth time, you finally slam it and it's over. Before your feet hit the ground, just say, good morning, God. My day is yours. Good morning, God. My day is yours. Do that for a week. Do that for two weeks. Do that for a month. Do that for a year. And see how that changes your perspective and how you will go to God in your first step of waiting. Not as your last resort, your last hope. I double-dog dare you to get up every morning this week and say, good morning, God, this day is yours. My day is yours. That's a commitment to saying, I'm going to you first before I even know what this day is going to be like. Secondly, obey what God has said while waiting for what he will do. Obey what God has said while you're waiting for what God will do. I mean, people are saying, Pastor, I need to know God's will for this and that and this, and I need the answers here and there, and I'll say, well, what are you doing? And Are you in God's word? Are you walking according to God's word? Are you obeying God in terms of your relationships and attitude and behaviors and words and life? And I say, no, I just want God to do this. David learned in those years he had to keep obeying God while he was waiting on what God would do to make him king. Psalm 119, 33 to 34, talking about the scriptures, the word of God. Teach me your decrees from your word, O Lord. I will keep them to the end. Give me understanding and I will obey your instructions. I will put them into practice with all my heart. I'll walk in obedience to you, God. If you're waiting for what God will do, don't just be in some sort of limbo. Get into God's word and find out how you're to live as his child. And then there'll be this sync. You'll be synced up with God in such a way that as he opens doors and as he moves in a direction, there'll be great 
satisfaction and joy and peace in that. Thirdly, care about others even if others don't care about you. You know, when David first went on the run, he ended up drooling in his beard before the king of the Philistines, and then he ran into the cave. We looked at that, the cave of Adullam in 1 Samuel 22, and we talked about how he was there for several months and wrote Psalm 142, Psalm 57, and Psalm 34 there, and we went over those psalms. Do you remember? He's there alone. Nobody comes to help him. Nobody cared about him for months. Some scholars believe it could have been as much as eight months to, to a year that he's alone in that cold, dark cave with the spit drying in his beard. Nobody cared for him. And then all of a sudden one day, remember in verse two of 1 Samuel 22, it says all the people who were discouraged, in distress, in debt, turned out to be 400 men, 200 others joined, and all their wives and families were outside of his cave, and they said, we need your help. If I were David, I would say, where have you been the last few months? You didn't care about me. Why do I care about you and your problems? But the text back there in 1 Samuel 22 says he became the leader over them. He became the leader over that small group, and then he became leader over his own tribe, and then he became the leader, as we've seen here in 2 Samuel 5, over the whole nation, because God was growing his capacity. But God called on him to care for people who didn't care about him. What did he say to them when they came, all these losers, after they'd ignored him for months? He steps out and says in Psalm 34, 8, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Oh, the joys of those who take refuge in him. Care about others. Go back to what I said about saying a kind word to somebody today, even people that irritate you, bug the snot out of you at work. Take time to say an encouraging word. Fourthly, trust God's heart even if you can't see his hand. Trust God's heart even when you can't see his hand. Sometimes it's hard to see how God's putting things together. It was hard for David to see that he was preparing him so that once he became crowned king, he'd immediately be able to have great victory. He couldn't see God's hand. He couldn't figure that out, but he had to trust God's heart that God loved him. God had the best in store for him, even as he was waiting. Psalm 20 and verse seven says, some trust in chariots and some in horses. Some of us trust in the physical things we can see and touch. We trust in our portfolios. We trust in our, our doctors. We trust in things that we can see. None of those things in and of themselves are wrong, but notice what he says. Uh, he says, but we trust the name of the Lord our God. The very essence of who our God is is wrapped up in his name, his greatness and his glory. Verse, uh, 50, uh, Psalm 56, three says, when I am afraid, I put my trust in you. I don't put my trust in the things of this earth. My trust is in you. Trust God's heart even if you can't see his hand. The great late 19th century preacher in London, Charles Spurgeon, said, God is too good to be unkind and he is too wise to be mistaken. When we cannot trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Maybe some of you just can't see what God's doing. You're waiting and nothing's changing or it's going the wrong direction. Trust his heart when you can't see his hand. Fifth and finally, rest your hope in God. Rest your hope in God. Even if things don't go your way, what do you do? You, you, you pray. I mean, he, can you imagine the day Saul died? He probably grieved because also Jonathan, his friend, died. And he's, he's a grieving time. But you imagine probably a you know, few months of grief. He thinks, okay, we've had national mourning. Now I'll be the king. It, it just works out perfectly. And all of a sudden, civil war. And it's another seven and a half years before he becomes king of all of, it, of Israel. And you'd think he'd, he'd say, These things are not going my way, God. Again, remember what I said. Sometimes God takes us through the storm, not around it. But he's going to go through it with us. 
with us. Rest your hope in God, even if things don't go your way. Psalm 27, 13 and 14, I remain confident of this, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. He says in the land of the living. He's not saying all my circumstances will work out perfect here on earth, but when we're connected to God and we're saying, good morning, Lord, this is your day, and then maybe even opening the Bible and spending some time in prayer, using the take five that our team gives to spend five or 10 minutes with God, you can find it on our website, just devotionals for every day this week, written by our staff. Just a little bit of time, and you say, we can then wait on the Lord, and even if things aren't going your way, you say, okay, my hope is in you, God. I'll see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart. Wait for the Lord. He is our refuge. He is our rock. He is our confidence. He is our hope. Rest your hope in God. Not in the people or stuff of this world. Rest your hope, your confidence, on all that you are in God. So what's God doing while you're waiting? He's working on your capacity, your character, your compassion, your commitment, your confidence. How do you wait well so you can soar on wings like eagles? Maybe one of these five things this week, one of these five things has stood out to you and you just need to pray over that, that thing or put that thing into action, whether it's make going to God your first step, not your last hope. Obey what God has said while waiting for what he will do. Care about others, even if others don't care about you. Say a kind word to someone this week. Trust God's heart, even if you can't see his hand. And then rest your hope in God, even if things don't go your way. Even if. Someone talked to me after the first service, and she said, you know, in the last couple of years, last couple of months, frankly, she said, I have learned that there is great joy in living the, the even if kind of faith life. Remember Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the Old Testament? Nebuchadnezzar put an idol up and said, everybody bow down to that. And they said, we can't bow down to that idol of you, Nebuchadnezzar. We've got one God, Jehovah. We're not going to bow down. He said, you don't bow down. I'm going to throw you in that fiery furnace, and you'll be burned up like that. It's so hot. They wouldn't bow down. He said, make the furnace hotter. He got them ready to throw in said, will you bow now? And they said, listen, we're not going to bow down. We only have one God. And we believe that if you throw us into that fire, our God is able, our God can Rescue us from those flames. Then they said, but even if he doesn't, we will still trust him. We need that kind of even if confidence and hope in our God. That even if, as I mentioned at the beginning, we need to understand that God does his greatest work in us personally. Even if we can't see it, even if we can't feel it, when we wait on him patiently. Let's be people who wait on God. And I know for some of you, those have been long seasons or hard seasons of waiting. There's no other alternative to find peace and satisfaction and joy in life in the waiting than to wait while you're walking with your God and to trust him even if, even if. Many of you know the band Mercy Me. We've had them here in concert. They had the big hit almost two decades ago. I can only imagine, will I dance for you, Jesus? Will I stand before you still, you remember that song? Well, the lead vocalist of Mercy Me, Bart Millard, wrote that song and a number of other songs that they've sung. But there was one song that he said he wrote because some days he would get up to be in a concert night after night, you know, to sing and to lead people toward Christ and hope in Christ. And he said, because he had as a child that has chronic disease that just is going to live with the rest of their lives. And if God does something supernatural for the child, he said, sometimes it's hard to lead people in worship before the Lord. And he said he 
He was reminded of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and the kind of waiting and the willingness to say, even if, even if. So he wrote a song called Even If. And he said, I know you're able, I know you can, but no matter what, I'm gonna trust your plan. No matter what, even if, I'm gonna keep my hope in you. You are my only hope. He said, he wrote in there even a couple of lines of, it is well with my soul, the old hymn, it is well with my soul. Maybe you're in a season of waiting. You need to just say with all confidence and hope in God, even if.